Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I have finished Luke 9, the very tail end of Jesus' last Galilean ministry, and we are now going to start in Luke 10, which Robertson labels the latter Judean ministry. So we're getting on down to the time where Jesus is going to be crucified and resurrected. Now, a lot of things happen before Luke takes up the story. I'm going to read you the heads in A.T. Robertson to show you what has happened up until we take up the narrative again in Luke chapter 10. These events are recorded in John. And remember, the problem of harmonizing John with Luke is extremely difficult. Robertson says it's the hardest harmonization problem there is, but we're just going to take his stab at it as being correct. First of all, we have the coming of Jesus to the Feast of Tabernacles creates intense excitement concerning the Messiahship. That's when Jesus said, I'll give you rivers of living water. If you believe in me, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. The next thing that happens is the story of the adulteress who is brought to Jesus for judgment. Go and sin no more. Let who is without sin cast the first stone. And then the next incident we have, after the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple, Jesus angers the Pharisees by claiming to be the light of the world. Then we have the next story. The Pharisees attempt to stone Jesus when he exposes their sinfulness. All of this is still in John. And then we have Jesus healing a man born blind who outwits the Pharisees. The rulers forbid the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, the conversion of the healed man. Again, that's in John. And next we have the parable or the allegory of the good shepherd. Jesus draws the picture of the hostile Pharisees and intimates that he is going to die for his flock and come to live again, come to life again. That's also in John. And now finally we get to Luke chapter 10 verses 1 through 24, the mission of the 70, Christ's joy in their work on their return. All right, let's start with Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, as we go through these instructions to the 70, you will note that similar instructions were given to the 12. Jesus sent the 12 out when he was up north in his Galilean ministry. Now he's down south in his Judean ministry where he sends out 70. So we need to keep those two events separate. They're similar. They're quite similar, as a matter of fact. Let me read you the scriptures, the synoptic parallel scriptures that describe the sending out of the twelve up in the north. Matthew 9, 37 through 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Matthew 10, 7 through 16. As you go, announce this. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, drive out demons. You have received free of charge, give free of charge. Don't take a long gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a walking stick for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it, and if a household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. I assure you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. We go to Mark 6, verses 7 through 11. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. They were to wear sandals but not put on an extra shirt. Then he said to them, 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And finally, in Luke 9, verses 3 through 5, take nothing for the road, he told them. No walking stick, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now what you see here is you're supposed to travel light. You're supposed to heal as you go. You're supposed to not go from one house to another, but find a worthy house to stay in. If people don't repent, shake the dust off your feet. Basically the same thing we're going to see here in the sending out of the 70. I don't think there's that, that much difference in my opinion, although there is a, I think there's a difference of opinion on that. I've got a quote here from Jameson Fawcett and Brown who claims that the sending out of the 12 is different than the sending out of the 70, but there's so many parallels, I don't think that's right. Now, I'm talking about the sending out of the 70 here. Luke 10.1 says the Lord appointed 70 others. Actually, there's textual variants here. Some manuscripts say 70, as the NIV note says. Some say 72 hard to know. Well, the reason you kind of want to make it 70, because there are some parallels with the Old Testament. Numbers 11:16. the Lord answered Moses, bring me 70 men from Israel known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. We already know that Jesus sent out 12 apostles because those 12 matched the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem has got a foundation of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. So that makes sense, and it would make sense that Jesus would also do that here, say, I'm starting the new Israel. The old Israel had 70 elders, and now the new Israel's got 70 elders. Maybe. That's a speculation. Now, let me give you this quote here that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, where Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown state that the sending of the 12 is different than the sending of the 70. Here's the quote. The mission, unlike that of the 12, was evidently quite temporary. He's referring to the mission of the 70 was temporary. All the instructions are in keeping with a brief and hasty pioneering mission, intending to supply what of general preparation for coming events the Lord's own visit afterwards to the same cities and places would not, from one of time, now suffice to accomplish. Whereas the instructions to the twelve, besides embracing all those to the seventy, contemplate worldwide and permanent effects. Accordingly, after their return from this single missionary tour, we never again read of the seventy. Well... You know, yeah, the 12 lasted. They were the ones. But, you know, it wasn't only the 12. For one thing, Judas was one of the 12. He was gone. They replaced him with Matthias, I think his name was. So I wouldn't get too excited about there's that much difference. According to the 12 and the 70, They both of them seem to be temporary. Notice here in verse 1 of Luke 10 that these 70 were to go ahead of him to every town and place where he himself was about to go. So these 70 were like advanced men. Preparing the way, kind of like John the Baptist prepared the way of Jesus. They were going out, preaching the kingdom, and getting those towns ready for when Jesus himself would show up and preach. Therefore, the response would probably be even greater than if Jesus had gone in there alone without the advance work of his apostles. All right, so now Jesus is covering Judea with his message as thoroughly as he had covered Galilee, according to my NIV study Bible. Now, notice that he sent them out in pairs. This is a an important fact. He sent the 12 out two by two, as you recall from those verses I just read. Now, this practice was confirmed, continued in the early church. Let me give you some examples from the book of Acts. Acts 13:2. as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. There's two, Barnabas and Saul. Acts 15:27. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. That was in connection with the Jerusalem. I think the Antioch church sent Judas and Silas down to the Jerusalem council. If I recall correctly, it was two people, Judas and Silas. Acts 15, 39 through 40. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Then Paul chose Silas. So Barnabas and Mark were two, and Paul chose Silas. Those were two. Two different missions, but each one, in each one, both missions had a pair of apostles leading those missions. Acts 17:14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. So Silas and Timothy, I think that was at, uh, where was that, Berea? I can't remember. It was in Acts 17, Acts 19:22. So after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, so he sent them out in twos. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now I must say that I, we, I ran across a guy who claimed he was an apostle, he was going around setting up churches, a little a apostle, and he insisted on traveling alone. Now, there was a reason for this. Everywhere he went, he wrecked churches, wrecked friendships. He was unaccountable. Nobody could tell him anything. And he didn't want to travel with anybody else, and I'm sure for, for, for that reason. So when he started causing trouble, we didn't have anybody to go to. Like his traveling partner saying, you know what your buddy's doing here? Maybe you better talk to him. Maybe we would have sit down and work this out. But we couldn't talk to him. He's just out traveling by himself. And when confronted on the issue, this is what he said. He said, well, Peter the Apostle traveled alone. It's not a universal pattern that the Apostles traveled in pairs. Well, I'll grant that. Sometimes Peter did travel alone. The example he gave was Peter leaving Jerusalem and going to Yapa in Acts 10. Yeah, he traveled alone, as far as I can tell. Maybe. I don't I think it doesn't really say. But just giving that away, giving that. Yeah, he traveled alone to Yapa. Then when he got the messages from Caesarea to go preach to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, Acts chapter 10, I think it's verse 24, explicitly says, and he took brothers from Simon the Tanner's house in Yapa. Those brothers went with Peter. He didn't travel alone up to the big mission that he was doing at Cornelius' house. It's just, now, I've been in China. I've had to do things alone, and I didn't like I don't like it. I went to San Diego one time to do a conference. I didn't like it. Sometimes, you know, just in China especially, things are very, very difficult in China. And sometimes I had trouble finding people to go with. But I guarantee you, if I have the choice between going in pairs or not going in pairs, I would go in a pair any day, any day. You need the help and you need the counsel. You need the checks and balances of other evangelists and apostles being sent out to do the work. In fact, if you think about the book of Acts, Paul always went out with a team of apostles. That was his modus operandi. He always had a team. And that was his church, basically. That's who he discussed things with. That's who he got aid and comfort from and prayer from when he needed it and so forth. All right. So this, like master, like disciple, Jesus set this pattern up, sending out by twelves. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. He, Jesus, told them, the 70, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Adam Clark points out that what, was, what happens when you have an abundant harvest and not enough people to reap the wheat, the harvest starts spoiling for want of being reaped. It just goes to seed. And Jesus is saying, using, you, Jesus uses that agricultural metaphor to say, look, man, these people are ready to get saved. Let's go get them. And, of course, there's always a shortage of workers. You know, why? Because money, family, jobs, everything gets in the way of people doing the work of God. I've seen this all my life. I've had to fight it tooth and nail when I was 
had a choice to go do something for God or go to my job. You know, I know how that is. It's a huge temptation. We've got to fight it. I heard somebody say that these barefoot evangelists in India, for example, and in China too, they don't since they don't have any money, they don't have any pensions, they don't have any insurance policies, they don't have to pay for all that, so it's not an option for them. So they just get just enough to live, just like these seventy apostles, seventy uh, evangelists here, seventy workers, I call them, just like them. They have nothing to back them up. They have to live off the land. And so they go and they spread the gospel all over India and all over China. And the gospel spreads like crazy. Western missionaries can't do that. We've got too much of our so-called social security, as Merle Haggard put it in a famous song. Luke chapter 10, verse 3. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Well, who are the wolves? A wolf is spiteful, malicious, cutting, and cruel, as John Gill says. Well, the wolves that we're being referred to here of course, were the Jewish Jewish leaders who hated Jesus. And since they hated Jesus, they would hate the disciples too. And so Jesus is saying, look guys, this ain't going to be easy. These guys are coming for you like they're going to come for me very shortly. I think Jesus has got about six months to live, I think. I don't don't hold me exactly to the time, but he doesn't have a long, he doesn't have a long time to live, and he knows that the Jewish leaders are coming to get him. A lamb is harmless, innocent, and defenseless, defenseless. And that's how we should go out. Harmless, innocent, defenseless. We don't cause controversy unless controversy follows us. Controversy is all right if it's a side product, but you don't deliberately go around stirring up trouble. You try to be like a lamb. But that doesn't mean that the lamb's supposed to sit around and get chomped on by the wolf now. Obviously not, because these disciples went out casting out demons. They didn't mess around with... I mean, they weren't they weren't pacifists. They didn't sit there and say, oh, just come get us, devil. But what it means, what it meant was don't go out and start being militant and aggressive and well just go to hell then i remember one time a friend of mine who was a good evangelist he was working on some somebody and he got so fed up because they kept giving him all these reasons why they weren't going to become a christian he just said well just go to hell then i don't know whether he actually said it but he was thinking he told me he was at least thinking it (laughs) that's that's a tendency that can get you if you're not careful so no we shouldn't we shouldn't do that we need to be like a lamb lambs don't tell wolves to go to hell Luke 10, verse 4, don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. They were supposed to travel light. Their mission was urgent because as time went on, Jesus was more likely to get arrested. They didn't have time to sit around and build bureaucracies and churches and organizations and all that kind of stuff. They just had to go out and preach quick. They didn't have time to raise money. They had to live off the land because there was not much time left in the kingdom. Jesus and his disciples were under time pressure. This is reflected by Jesus' command to don't greet anyone along the road. Greetings in that culture were lengthy. They would waste time, as the NIV Study Bible says. Now, Jesus wasn't telling them to be uncivil, but he was saying don't waste time because in that Eastern culture, people greeted and greeted. Now, I'm from the South, and I know how it is. Hi, how you doing? How's your family? How's your third cousin once removed? She get over that divorce, and on and on and on and on. So glad to have you. Come on and sit a while. And then, of course, when they're leaving, it takes twice as long for people to leave the house. We sure enjoy being with you tonight. Yes, sir. Come back and don't rush off. Don't rush off. Come back and sit. Come out and sit a spell. Nah, I better be going. But do you remember that time, that story last week? And on and on it goes. Well, that's nice, but you don't have time for that. You got to. Keep moving. Spread the word. Don't waste time. 
When he says don't wear, don't carry sandals, he means don't carry extra sandals. Obviously, they were going to wear sandals on the road. They were going to have one pair on their feet. And, of course, all these prohibitions were given in the instructions of the Twelve up north in Galilee, except for the one, don't greet anyone along the road. That's a new one. Luke chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Well, first of all, what's the son of peace? That's a Jewish way of saying a peaceful man. You know, sons of thunder, that means a thunderous man. That's just the way they talked. Jewish idiom kind of way of saying things. So if you find a peaceful man, your peace will rest on him. This is also somewhat idiomatic. I read a bunch of commentaries trying to get something good out of it. I wasn't real happy about it. But basically what it's saying is, is that your peace will rest on him, meaning... He's peaceful, and you're peaceful. And your peace, he, the peaceful host will get together with a peaceful disciple guest, and you'll get all along in peace. That's basically what it means. But if the man is not peaceful, if not, your peace will return to you. What that means is the host is belligerent. He's a man of strife. He's not a good host. Well, then the disciples are going to take their peaceful selves and beat it out of there and go somewhere else. That's what it means by your peace will return to you. It's kind of a Jewish way of saying something. i got to paraphrase with this. This is the way I would say it. If you find a peaceful host, join your peaceful selves with him and enjoy your stay there. If the host is not peaceful, take your peaceful disciple selves away from the unpeaceful host and scram. Leave. And what, what's the reason for this? Well, the last thing the disciples need to do is get in controversy with their host. They're out there preaching the gospel. It would look bad to have some kind of controversy. Say some member of the some household guest says, "Yeah, come on in. You're t- your rabbi's teaching," and then you say, "Well, I." And then the host says, "Well, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I believe in all the traditions of the elders, and what you people are teaching is disgraceful and blasphemous." Well, you can't hang around and hang around with somebody like that. You got to leave. I think that was that's the practicalities of it. Luke 10 verse 7: Remain in the same house. Unless you're in a situation where the host is not peaceful, I might add. Luke 10, verse 7, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house. Now, why? What is the rationale behind this prohibition? The NIV study Bible, in a different place, commenting on a different verse, says this. Don't waste time looking for better lodging, commenting on the the same prohibition to the twelve. And sent out in Galilee, don't waste time looking for better lodging. You save time, use the house that you started with as headquarters for preaching in a community. And I might add that if they start looking for better housing, it might make the host offended because the host will say, what's the matter, you don't like my house? And it'll make the disciples look like they're money grubbers. So stay in the same house, don't waste time. Now, Jesus says the worker is worthy of his wages. Does that mean that he, the workers are expecting their host to pay them a salary for their work? Of course not. This is a metaphor. But it's amazing. And Well, let's first of all, let me, before I get into my screed about paying paid clergy, let me point out to you that this is a common metaphor. Matthew 10, 10, this is when the 12 were sent out. Don't take a traveling bag, etc., etc., for the worker is worthy of his food. 1 Corinthians 9, 4, this is talking about apostles. Paul is talking. He says, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by our Christian wife like the other apostles? Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to refrain from working? In other words, is it just Barnabas and I who can live off of donations? Are all the other apostles have to work? Whoever goes to work at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat his fruit? 
who shepherds a flock does not drink the milk from his flock. In other words, Paul's saying we have the right to financial support. But that's not a salary. Financial support from voluntary gifts. Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? Or isn't he really saying it for us? Yes, for this it is this is written for us because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits for you from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? However, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Ah, earn their living wages, right? Well, there was another place in Second Timothy where it says, you know, don't muzzle the ox. And he says, workers worthy of his wages. The muzzling of the ox was a metaphor. The farmer didn't pay the ox a wage or a salary for muzzling the grain. It just meant, you know, let him eat some food. It was a metaphor. And it was not meant to be taken literally, because obviously, if you take it literally here, these workers are going to be going are going to be going are going to be going from house to house, earning a salary from their host and getting paid hourly wages from their host, which is absurd. Of course they're not. They're taking hospitality. They're taking gifts. Nothing wrong with that. But to take that and go to the next step and say that a worker should take wages, then you end up with a professional clergy, which has caused more grief in the body of Christ than just about anything I can imagine. And by the way, when Jesus, when Timothy said, Paul told Timothy, honor those who preach hard, who teach much, teach well, honor them, and who pray, who teach, honor them. The word is the Greek word for gift, honorarium, a gift. There are two Greek words, which means pay or salary. Paul didn't use those words. He used the word for gift. All right, enough of that. Luke 10, verse 8. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Now, to me, it seems that it would be obvious to eat the things set before them. Why did Jesus say that? Well, here's some reasons, why, possible reasons why Jesus said this. So people, so uh, because people would be irritated if the disciples scrupled over whether the food was clean or unclean. That's John Gill's idea. Remember, this is a Jewish context. These are Jews they're staying with. And you sit down and you say, I'm not sure whether that thing's clean or not, according to the law, according to the traditions of the elders. Well, you're going to offend your host by doing that. Because the host obviously thought it was clean. He wouldn't have put it before you. Or what if they just didn't like the food? People would think it was rude if they didn't eat, if the food wasn't good enough for them. Now, of course, this is the famous missionary verse. And I, I tell you, I've been in a lot of situations where I've had food put in front of me that I would rather die than eat. And it's an embarrassing situation. It's just absolutely frippin' embarrassing. So, you know, you learn the tricks. You kind of shovel it under some other food and hope they don't notice it. Maybe put it in a napkin somewhere and try not to gag as you eat the thousand-year-old egg. As you get the fish bones stuck in your throat crosswise and you think you're going to die. You have to drink, and you have to drink vinegar to dissolve the fish bone. That tastes good, too. Anyway, you know, the best thing to do is just to suck it up and eat the stuff so that you don't offend your host. I think that's a good application. I don't think that would happen with these particular disciples. They were Jews going into Jewish houses. But again, I think it's a good application for missionaries. Luke 10, verse 9. Jesus continues with his admonitions to the 70. 
Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. And of course, this is what this is all about, folks, the kingdom of God, the establishment of the church of Christ, getting ready for it, which was going to happen later at Pentecost. Heal the sick who are there and tell them. Now, the kingdom of God, as Adam Clark says, or as the NIV Study Bible says, that's the heart of Jesus' message. He mentions that term, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. Adam Clark says, quote, the general text in which they were to preach all their sermons, that's how, well, that's what the kingdom of God means, the general text on which they were to preach all their sermons. Now, Jesus says to heal uh, in the midst of their preaching. As Jesus went out healing and teaching in his kingdom, so were his disciples to do that. Well, now, John MacArthur might not like this verse. He and his fellow cessationists, he might say, no, don't heal the sick. People might think you're a crook like Benny Hinn. Jesus didn't say that. Or this is something else John MacArthur might say, quote, Evangelists today don't need power. We've got money, organizations, bureaucracy, stained glass windows, and billions of dollars of church buildings that stand all the way empty six days of the week and partially empty on Sunday. What do we need that kind of healing power for? Well, okay, I'm not going to say anything more about that. I'm telling you, if you want to imitate Jesus, if Jesus is your example, how about learn about, how about praying for people that are sick? Listen, you don't have to be charismatic Pentecostal to pray for people who are sick. I have seen non-charismatic, a reform-type guy, uh, pray for me at conferences where I was sick and I couldn't talk and he needed me to talk. He just prayed for me. By golly, I was ready, well and ready to go. That's happened more than once. Pray for the sick. Oh, but I don't know that everybody's going to get healed. Well, do you know that everybody's going to get saved when you pray for them? I just, listen, I see somebody that's not saved. If I can get them to listen about the gospel, I'll talk, try to talk to them. They might not get saved. I just did it last week. Talked to this Buddhist Chinese woman. And she goes on and on and on about how Buddhists are good people and how Christianity's good and everything's good. You know, difficult person to talk to, and she didn't get saved. And I wish she had of. But you know what? I can't worry about that. I just go out and try to talk to them about the kingdom. Well, why can't you do the same thing with people that are sick? I don't know whether Jesus is going to heal them or not, but I pray for them. I, there's an Indian woman right now who's, go, who's, let her, who's witnessing all over where she is. She's in China now, but in India, she witnesses to everybody she, she sees. She's the most turned-on Christian I've ever seen, the most faithful, the most diligent, the most on-fire Christian. And the reason she is is because she asked me to pray for her dying father who was unconscious in the hospital. And if I'd have been raised by John MacArthur, I would have said, well, now, you know, God doesn't heal today. But instead, I said, if God heals, I didn't, I didn't make any promises, but I said, if Jesus heals your father, are you going to accept Christ? Jesus raised the guy up from his sickbed out of the intensive care unit. He'd been unconscious in a coma for over a month, I think it was. He had everything in the world bleeding inside of him, and he was dying. And that Indian woman was so impressed, she became saved. So this is my admonition. If you see somebody sick, pray for them. Sickness is a horrible, horrible thing. I've got friends right now, i got a friend right now whose wife is in so much pain, can't even touch her leg without her screaming in agony. It's terrible. Heal sickness is a horrible curse. Pray for people to be healed. And I didn't say don't go to the hospital. Go to the hospital if you need to, that's fine. But pray that somebody be healed. And if you think the hospital's got all the answers, well, you're living in a different planet than I am. In fact, a good way to get sepsis is to go to a hospital. But anyway, go to the hospital, but pray for healing. Luke 10, verse 10 through 11. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, We are wiping off, as a witness against you, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. What does wiping the dust off the feet mean? Here's some options. 
Option number one is the symbolic act of rejection. This pra practice of wiping the dust off the feet, it was actually practiced by the Pharisees and became adapted to the disciples' use. The NIV Study Bible says that when Pharisees left an unclean Gentile area, they would wipe the dust off their feet to show, we ain't got nothing to do with you Gentile dogs. And here the disciples were to wipe the dust off the feet, off their feet as an act of solemn warning to anyone who re rejected God's message. The Jews consider themselves defiled by the dust of a heathen country. That's why they wipe the dust off. They say, we're not going to have anything to do with this he these heathen dogs. And so the idea is here, you disciples, you wipe your dust off your feet saying you're not going to have anything to do with a town that rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're going down. This wiping the dust off the feet, like I said, is a common Jewish symbol. Luke 9, 5, if they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. That's in the sending out of the 12 up in Galilee. Acts 13, 51, but they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium from Pisidian Antioch. This is on the first journey. Paul and Silas, I think it was. They shook the dust off their feet when, when Pisidian Antioch gave them trouble. They said, okay, fine. We don't have anything to do with you anymore. They will learn, They learned from their master. Mark 6, 11. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That's, again, a parallel passage for the sending out of the twelve. Luke chapter 10, verse 12. I tell you, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Well, Sodom, of course, is the is the, the poster city for sin, corruption, rebellion. They were full of homosexuals. Oh, that's a controversial subject these days. No. They were full of homosexuals who were engaged in lusting after strange flesh, and God judged them. Despite what the gay, so-called gay Christians say about, no, it wasn't for homosexuality that they, they were judged. They were judged for the breach of hospitality. Oh, really? You breach hospitality until the town gets wiped out. I don't think so. Okay, so they were judged just like Sodom was judged, just like the rejecting cities in Israel would be judged. But the difference was this. The cities of Israel had the message of God preached straight to them by the Son of God. Not so with Sodom. So the cities of Israel were sinning against a greater light. Therefore, their judgment was going to be more, it was going to be worse than Sodom's judgment. And Sodom's judgment was pretty bad. So, so Jesus is telling them, look, don't give no namby-pamby American 20th century evangelical type of gospel. God's just a nice old granddad up on the sofa throwing out lollipops to his children. We're just going to talk about love, 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 love. Like Andy Stanley. We're not going to talk about the Old Testament, anything to have to do with judgment. No. Oh, wait a minute. This is in the New Testament. Jesus is talking about judgment. How do you figure that? Oh, I thought Jesus was just a God of love, 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 love. Excuse my cynicism. Hang around the American church long enough and you're going to get a little cynical. All right, the 12 were told the same thing as the 70 here. Matthew 10:15. when the 12 were sent out, I assure you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In other words, the town that rejects Jesus. Going on to Luke 10, verses 13 through 14, the same idea of judgment is continued. Woe to you, Chorazin, Jesus says. Woe to you, Bethsaida, two more towns. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon, why were they to be particularly judged? Well, they were noted for being sinful. Let me get a good quote here from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. As their wealth and prosperity engendered luxury and its concomitant evils, 
irreligion and moral degeneracy. Their overthrow was repeatedly foretold in ancient prophecy and once and again fulfilled by victorious enemies. For example, Alexander the Great. That's a great story. How he took Tyre. It took him a while, but he got him. Yet they were rebuilt and at this time were in a flourishing condition. So Tyre and Sidon were judged, rebuilt, judged. But basically, they, they went through a horrible judgment at one time in their history. And so Jesus is saying, you don't want to be like that. Well, Tyre and Sidon had it bad, but Carson and Bethsaida are going to have it worse. Why? Because there were more miracles done in Carson and Bethsaida than there were done in Tyre and Sidon. Why? Carson was just north of Capernaum. Where was Jesus' headquarters? In Capernaum. That's where he did most of his miracles. So Carson was right there in the midst of all those miracles. Bethsaida was right next to where the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. It was on Capernaum and Carson were on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Jesus, uh, like I said, did the feeding of the 5,000 there. Apparently they didn't repent because Jesus said, you're heading for um, judgment because you didn't listen to me when I came preaching the gospel to you. Gosh, I wish people today preaching the gospel had the guts to preach the gospel like Jesus did. Let me just talk, throw in a few facts about Bethsaida. As I said, it was on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Philip the Tetrarch, that's the good Philip. Philip Herod the for Philip Herod the second. I'm sorry, was his name. He rebuilt Bethsaida and renamed it Julius. This was after Caesar Augustus' very promiscuous daughter Julia, so it was named after a, a, a slut. And that city was where Andrew, Peter, and Philip were from, and Simon. Well, Andrew and Peter and also Philip was from. The word means fishing house. So naturally, that's where Jesus, he was up there in the stomping grounds of his disciples. And Capernaum is where Peter's mother-in-law lived. And Carson was just north of there. And so that's where most of the miracles were being done. And they didn't repent. Not like Jesus wanted them to. Luke 10, verse 15. Speaking of Capernaum, Jesus brings up Capernaum right here in verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Now, to put it in nicer English, you're going to go to hell, Capernaum. Well, let's talk about that. The NIV says the depths. Hades should be translated. It is translated as the depths. The word is a little bit fuzzy. You know, sometimes in the, Old in the New Testament Greek, it would refer to the shadowy place of the dead. Sometimes it just meant the grave. Sometimes it just meant death in general. Well, I th uh, John Gill says that here it means death in a temporal sense. The city is going to die temporally. And I think that makes sense because how can a city go to hell? A city can't go to hell. Individuals have to go to hell or go to Hades. Either one. Hell, of course, is the, <laughs> the severer place where it's darkness, weakness, worm of the... The turning worm never stops. The fires of Gehenna and all that stuff, you know, eternal punishment. But cities can't do that. Cities can't go to hell. So I think what Jesus is doing is using that as a metaphor. You will go down to Hades means you will go down to destruction, which actually happened, by the way. Capernaum was destroyed in the times of Vespasian. That's at the time of the Jewish war with the Romans. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown says Capernaum has been utterly lost. Well, actually, he wrote, I think, in the 1800s sometime, late 1800s, they did. But since then, archaeologists have dug up Capernaum, because I've been there. They found Peter's, I think they said they found Peter's house. had a lot of interesting stuff there. It's a great archaeological site. If you ever go to Israel, you should go see it. But the point is, Capernaum was destroyed. Well, in fact, it's, it's still an it's just an archaeological, archaeological site now. It's, it never came back. So Jesus knew what he was talking about. 
By the way, Capernaum is also mentioned in Matthew eleven twenty three. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done inside them, it would would have remained until today. So Jesus repeated his his woe on Capernaum down in Judea that he had already pronounced in Galilee. This word exalted. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be exalted? John Gill says that word exalted in Hebrew is close to a place higher than Mount Carmel. Will you be put in a place higher than Mount Carmel? Of course, Mount Carmel is very high. So it's a Hebrew metaphor. It means utmost prosperity and greatest privileges. So are you going to be prosperous, Capernaum? No. You're going to be destroyed because you didn't believe in Jesus. Luke 10, verse 16, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, this was said for the encouragement of the 70, according to my NIV study Bible. Jesus is saying, look, disciples, evangelists, don't feel bad. If you get rejected, know that they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Son of Man. They're rejecting Jesus. And they're rejecting the Father who sent Jesus. So don't feel bad. It's not your fault. It's not that you didn't give a good presentation of the gospel. It's that because the people are so hard-headed, they deserve judgment, like Carson and Bethsaida and Capernaum. It's not your fault. It's the people who reject me. It's their fault. Now, notice that somebody out there testifying to Jesus, that testimony is rejected. It's not the disciples' word that's being rejected. It's Jesus who's being rejected. And then when you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. Because there's only one way to the Father, and that's Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the God who made this universe and who wants to have fellowship with you. That's why it bugs me. These liberals say, well, you know, I don't believe what Paul said. I believe what Jesus said. That's nonsense. Jesus himself said that if you reject the one I send, you rejected me. And Jesus sent Paul. He, Paul had all kind of visions, you remember, on the road to Damascus. And, and, and where is it? He, had all, he was ca- called up to the third heaven and had all these unspeakable visions. And all Jesus was talking to Paul to send him out, to spread the gospel. So you reject Paul, liberals. You reject Jesus. I actually was given a Bible study one time. And this woman, she was a Catholic woman, didn't know a lot about the Bible. And she gave me this, well, that's just Paul's opinion. And I said, wait a minute. And I quoted this verse. I said, you reject Paul. You reject the Jesus who sent Paul. You can't just say it's just Paul's opinion. It's nonsense. Luke verse 10, verse, chapter 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. The NIV Study Bible says that notwithstanding difficulties, reproaches, ill treatment, they must have received in some places, and I'm sure that happened. That's why Jesus was warning them. But they weren't concerned about the bad stuff that happened to them. They were were full of joy. And they expressed that joy by saying, Lord, even this demon submit to us in your name. They were astonished at the power that was bestowed upon them. Now there's a question here. Are they being arrogant and proud? Look, hey, Lord, even the demons submit to us in their name. I don't think so. They were just telling Jesus how awesome it all was. That's all they were doing. They weren't being proud. I remember uh, listening to the harumphing and shuffling and complaining that non-charismatics did when the charismatic movement first broke out. And all you heard is over and over again, you're being proud because you're casting out demons. You're being proud because you're casting out demons. No. If you're proud for being proud for casting out demons, why did Jesus even give them the power to cast out demons? Didn't he say, cast out demons, you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, and cast out demons? He told them to cast out demons. He, you know, sure, you can get proud of casting out demons. You can get proud of preaching the gospel. We're not supposed to go preach the gospel. It's amazing how people twist the scriptures to fit their ideological assumptions. 
No, so I don't think they were being proud. There was a tendency they could have gotten proud. There's no question about that. Jesus took care of that in just a minute. They returned from this trip, the 70. How long were they gone? Clark says it could be only a few days. I don't know. Clark says it was while Jesus was going through Samaria, coming from Galilee down to Jerusalem. But the problem with that is A.T. Robertson has all sorts of stuff being done in Jerusalem before all this happened. I'm the light of the world, rivers of living water, and all that kind of stuff have gone on in Jerusalem. So, I th And Robertson, I think, is probably right. So I don't think it was that short a time while Jesus was traveling through Samaria. But we don't know how long it was. But they obviously had a big impact, these 70. Luke 10, verse 18, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Of course, that's referring to the disciples' assertion that they were casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, when did Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash? Well, this is kind of interesting. Or when did Jesus watch Satan fall? Satan obviously fell at the very beginning when he was an angel of light, a good angel, and became a bad angel. So this could refer to Jesus saying, I watched Satan in the past when I was with God the Father. I saw him fall from heaven. That could be. The problem with that is the word watch is imperfect. So it, it more literally translated would be, I was watching. Progressive, imperfect means it's progressing in the past. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. So it could be a metaphor referring to Satan losing his power on earth as the, as the disciples cast the demons out. And I think that's probably what it is. In other words, Jesus is saying, I saw Satan fall from an exalted position to a lowly one. Jameson Fawcett Brown, by the way, mentions that imperfect tense argument saying, Jesus was saying, I was beholding Satan fall, i.e., as you disciples were out there driving out demons, I was watching you do that, and I was watching Satan fall from heaven. John Gill, on the other hand, says it was talking about Jesus when he was before he was incarnate, he saw Satan fall when Satan rebelled against God. That was the other option I mentioned earlier. I think Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have got the better part of that argument, although I am not 100% certain there. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Jesus continues talking to his 70 disciples. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. Snakes and scorpions, that could be literal. That's what John Gill says that. I don't think so. I mean, maybe they had a problem with snakes and scorpions, but that's not their main problem. I think it's referring to the scribes and the Pharisees, as Clark said. After all, Jesus called them a brood of vipers. Did he not? As I try to back up Clark's opinion on that. I'm giving you authority to trample on those Pharisees and those scribes. Or another option is referring, it's a metaphor referring to demons because they're just talking about the demons were subject to the disciples in Jesus' name. And so Jesus says, hey, I gave you authority to trample, on, trample over those demons. And over all the power of the enemy, the enemy being Satan, nothing will ever harm you. So whatever it is, whether it's the demonic scribes and Pharisees or whether it's literal demons sent out by the devil, doesn't matter. We have the power, the disciples have the power, and I'm applying it to us today to have the authority to trample on on our enemies like that. Nothing will ever harm you, Jesus said. Nothing will ever harm you. Now, it is amazing to me how many young Christians became become frightened of Satan, especially in China, because they're very aware of demonic stuff over there. And I've had several young Chinese converts talk about how the demons were looking at them through the window and all this stuff. And had one of them said she heard a, heard a uh, her Buddhist grandmother or something was speaking in demonic tongues and therefore she didn't want to have anything to do with tongues which reminds me of a, what happened with me 
I was confronted with tongues on early charismatic movement, and I was investigating the issue, as I always do, looking at the pros and the cons. And I went to bed one night, and I had this horrible dream. I dreamed that I was standing up on top of a mountain, and everything got blacker and blacker. And all of a sudden, in the background, I heard this eerie, spooky, demonic wailing and shrieking. And then I heard the this ickiest speaking in tongues you have ever heard in your life. It was obviously demonic. Even when I was asleep, I knew it was demonic. Scared the ever-loving daylights out of me in the dream. And then my hands went around my neck, and they started to squeeze in the dream. And the, the demons love to do this. I actually did an exorcism one time with a, with a girl who was possessed grabbed her neck like the demon grabbed her neck like that and started choking. That one scared the blazes out of me too. Well, anyway, in the dream, squeezed my neck, and then I fell off into the blackness, into the dark, down, down, and I woke up in a cold sweat before I hit the ground, fortunately. And immediately after I collected myself, I said, ah, devil's trying to fool me out of, trying to cheat me out of speaking in tongues. And I don't need to be frightened of the devil. The devil is supposed to be frightened of us. If you read this verse... Jesus says, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. And the 70 disciples went out casting out demons. So who's afraid of whom? The demons are supposed to be afraid of us. And if you ever find yourself thinking or find a, a, another Christian thinking, that, that, oh, I'm scared of the devil, I'm scared of the devil, they do not understand Jesus' words or the power of his words or the power of the Holy Spirit. They just don't. You should never spend a minute of worry about the devil. You should be thinking about how that devil is scared to death of you because of the Jesus who lives in you. Think of all the demons that Jesus cast out. Did they look? Did they say, ah, Jesus, what you, you think you're going to take me on? No, they started screaming and hollering, anguish and terror. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Jesus continues talking to his 70 disciples. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now here, Jesus is probably warning them not to get too big ahead because of their newfound powers. NIV study Bible says the ultimate salvation was more important than beating the devil, and that's absolutely right. However, we need to balance that off. Like so many anti-charismatics didn't balance it off. It would be wrong to say that we should not rejoice at all when Satan is beat. <laughs> what Jesus was saying here, he's not saying don't rejoice, period, that the spirits submit to you. He means don't rejoice ultimately that the spirits submit to you. It's all right to rejoice, but rejoice more that your names are written in heaven. Now, this metaphor of your names being written in heaven, that's just the same thing as saying that you're with God, that you belong to God, that you're saved. Let me give you some one, two, three, four, five verses where that metaphor is used. Two in the Old Testament, three in the New. Psalm 69, 28. Let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. So you see, being written in the book means you're righteous, you're saved, you belong to God. Philippians 4.3, yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. That's just a Hebrew way of saying who are saved. Hebrews 12.23, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. So being written in heaven is just another way of saying you have a spirit, you, the spirit of a righteous person is saved. He's in heaven. Revelation 3, 5, in the same way the victor will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Now, by the way, Armenians love to say, I will never erase his name. That means that there's a possibility he might erase his name. No, that's not what it means. 
It just means he's never going to erase your name from the book of life. Period. You're there. Now, where did this metaphor come from? The metaphor is taken from the ancient custom of writing names of citizens in a public register so that the baby's inheritance might be preserved. The names of the newborn would be added to that register. And so the book was called the Book of Life because of the newly added life to the book. Now, the names of the deceased, or those who were acting improperly, were probably erased. Adam Clark says, naturally, he says that he's an Arminian. Okay, so they erased. That's a human thing. God ain't going to erase your name from the Book of Life. How are you going to be his son and not be his son? I got a son. If he goes out and robs a bank and kills people, is he going to stop being my son? I'm not going to be happy about it. But he's not going to, he's, I can't, you know, it's genetic. He's my son. That's it, period. And once the Holy Spirit comes in you and makes you born again of the seed of the incorruptible God, excuse me, the, the incorruptible word of God, and that seed joins itself with your spirit, and the Holy Spirit mingles with your spirit, and you become his son, and you're telling me that you're going to now not be his son anymore. That's what Armenians have got to prove to me, and they ain't going to do it. It ain't going to happen, because it ain't true. Luke 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. The infants, of course, were the disciples that he just sent out. They were basically young in the Lord in spiritual things. The wise and the learned, of course, is referring to the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they knew everything about God and about the law. They knew nothing about the true truly spiritual things, those things were hidden from them, not because God was arbitrary, but because they deserved to be hidden from, because the Pharisees deserved to have those things hidden from them because they were such horses' asses. Now, why did Jesus rejoice in the Holy Spirit? The gospel was spreading. The devil was getting beat. His disciples were successful in the ministry. Of course, he's rejoicing. It's the same way you and I rejoice when we hear about the gospel spreading, and the same reason we're sad when we hear about the gospel hitting roadblocks and obstacles. Now, that rejoiced could be translated stronger, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown, who says that, who say that that is a weak translation. Exalted in spirit is better, say they. In that same hour, he rejoiced. He exalted in spirit, in the Holy Spirit. By the way, in the Holy Spirit means under the control of and surrounded by and 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 filled up with and under all aspects governed by the Holy Spirit. The phrase is a little bit fuzzy, you know, in the Holy Spirit. You see it a lot, and it's a little bit fuzzy, but it just basically means the Holy Spirit's around when when something is said to be done in the Holy Spirit. This, by the way, is one of the few occasions where we see Jesus' inner thoughts, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. We see him rejoicing. Usually, we just see his outward activities. We don't see what he's thinking. We have to guess what he's thinking most of the time. Now, Jesus said this thing about hiding things from the wise. Here's another occasion, Matthew 11... Verse 25 and 27. This is not on the occasion of sending the twelve out. It's on another occasion. But he says the same thing. Matthew 11:25 through 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal to him. And when we get the next verse in Luke 10, 22, we'll see that's pretty much the same teaching that he gave. Now, we have to remember that a lot of times Jesus gets, gave the same teaching on different occasions, so you can't just assume that they're parallel instances. It was God's good pleasure to let these infants know. That's what God wanted. Let's go to Luke 10, verse 22. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. That means all spiritual things. 
No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. No one knows. Now, what that means is, that doesn't mean know who the Son is except the Father in the sense that, well, let's put it this way. If I know Jesus because I'm born again and I have a relationship with him, I know Jesus. So when Luke says no one knows who the Son is except the Father, does that mean I don't know Jesus? That would be a contradiction. What Luke is saying here, no one knows the Father in his fullness, in all of his nature, in all of his perfections, because the Son is God and he was with God and was God, as John 1, 1 says, from the beginning of the world, from forever and ever and ever. So, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. And again, we, we, we know something about who the Father is, but the Son knows fully and completely who the Father is. As John Gill puts it, the Son knows what are the Father's perfections, His purposes, His grace, His greatness, His mind, and His will. Now let's go down to this last part of the verse, 20, verse 22 in Luke 10. And anyone... No one, let me let me read the verse again. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. In other words, no one knows who the Father is except for someone whom the Son desires to reveal the Father to. In other words, if we're going to know who the Father is, the Son's got to reveal the Father to that person. Well, notice that our knowledge of the Father comes from Jesus' revelation first. Jesus has to tell us who the Father is. Oh, we're not going to believe. To anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him, that's who's going to find out who the Father is when Jesus reveals the Father to us. Now, I ask all you Armenians out there, how do you deal with that? Does the verse say, yes, Jesus will reveal the Father to us when we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, please tell us who the Father is? And Jesus says, okay, I'll do it. Who does the initiating there? The individual believer, or is it the Son of God? The, let me read the verse again. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. The Son reveals the Father to the believer. It's not the believer asking Jesus to reveal the Father to the believer. It's the Son revealing the Father to reveal it, revealing the Father to the believer. It's the son's first motion that does that. So if you're an Armenian, you've got to deal with that. I don't have to worry about it because I'm not an Armenian. Last two verses, Luke 10, verse 23 through 24. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, The eyes that see the things you see are blessed. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see, yet didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, yet didn't hear them. Now here's, on a similar occasion, Jesus taught a similar idea Matthew 13:11 it was a different it was a different occasion than the sending out of the 70 obviously but and it was different than the sending out of the 12 also but in Matthew 13:11 he answered them because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know but it has not been given to them was God arbitrary no the reason it wasn't given to them to the scribes and the Pharisees is because they were butts and they were blasphemous and they were hard-hearted, and they were evil, and they were cruel. That's why they didn't get to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 16 through 17. But your eyes are blessed, because they do see, and your ears, because they do hear. For I assure you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, yet didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, yet didn't hear them. Prophets and kings are big shots. These infants that Jesus, he, he called them infants, they got to see. They got to see because they had a heart of faith. They had a heart like a child. They got to see the things of the Spirit, the things of the kingdom. 
prophets and kings, the big shots with all the power in the world, they didn't get to see. Now, of course, Jesus could be referring to, referring to true prophets in the Old Testament. They, they didn't see not because they were high and arrogant, but they didn't see just because the revelation hadn't occurred yet. Remember, they had their revelation, and they would see, search that revelation to see what things were being spoken of. They didn't have the New Testament events to help them interpret their own prophecies. But by golly, these people now, the disciples of Jesus, they're seeing prophecy fulfilled in front of their very eyes. So they can go back and read those Old Testament prophets and see how what they're doing fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. The blind are seeing, the, the dumb are talking, the deaf are hearing, and the acceptable day of the Lord is being preached. Prophets and kings wanted to see the things you see and didn't see them, Jesus said. What things? Well, John Gill sums it up this way, the person of the Messiah, his kingdom setting up in the world, the miracles wrought by him, and Satan falling before him, as well as his doctrines, all those things. These infants of Jesus got to see. That's a very uplifting 24 verses, I think, in Luke 10. I'm finished here. We will next finish Luke 10, starting with verse 25, in the next audio when we talk about what is the greatest law. Hope you enjoyed this audio. 